What's up, people? Hotep Jesus back with another very important conversation. As you know, I love to have just good, important conversations, things that are relevant, things that need to be relevant in your life, things you need to be paying attention to, and uh, a whole lot of big brain stuff. Today, I got a very special guest with me, um, Brendan Murata. He's uh, actually got a documentary out on Netflix uh, called, uh, what is it called? American Circumcision. You got that right. Yep. American Circumcision. So I suggest you all take it out. Check that out. Um, very accomplished dude. Uh, been following me on Twitter for a little while now. We almost met up <laughs> this year <laughs> at, at an event. But uh, without further ado, Brendan Murata, how you feeling, bro? I'm feeling good. Thanks for having me on. No problem, man. So uh, how'd you get into this whole directing thing? So I have been making films since I was 14. Uh, I saw a film critic go through the original Star Wars film shot by shot, believe it or not. And that was like the first time it occurred to me that you could share ideas through film. And I know it sounds sort of obvious, but at 14, that I was interested in philosophy. I was interested in spirituality. And most people don't have those conversations with a young person, but I realized if you put them in ideas in a film, people would have the conversation. So after that, I went up to him after and I said, I want to be able to make films. And like, how would I do that? He said, well, read some film theory and you do it. And so I made over 50 projects in high school. I went to film school. I worked professionally. And now there's a film directed by me on Netflix. How's the uh, Netflix thing going? It's going good. Um, we trended on the platform when we came out last year and I've gotten a lot of really good feedback about it. A lot of people have seen it and it seems like the reaction has been really positive. So it's going well. So for people that want to get a film on Netflix, what's that process like? Did you know somebody over there? Did you email? Did you call? Did you pop up on their building? How'd that thing happen? So two things. Uh, one, we picked a distributor that had sold to them before, and it was a distributor that took independent documentaries and, uh, a filmmaker friend of mine had worked with them. So I went with them. Um, it's not, it's, it is, uh, they're, they're selective about what they put up there, but if you go through the process and you have a good film, they're open to it. So the other thing that we did is we had a film that was in a unique niche so every year people are having children and they have all sorts of questions about when they're having children and so our film since it's about something that often happens around birth is really relevant for them and there's not there's not anything on that of of that quality on that scale that's out there on this issue right now like us um so we went through that and then you also if you do a film this is it depends how like deep technical you want to go on this but you have to go through what's known as uh, you basically have to have a lawyer look at the film and make sure that it's not something you're going to get sued for. And you have to get insurance on it so that in the event that someone decides to bring a frivolous lawsuit, you're okay. Um, so those, those are the two things. They won't take a film that doesn't have that because, you know, it's a huge liability for them. Right. So uh, I don't want to be all in your pockets, but <laughs> what is it? What is the, you know, is, is Netflix paying out royalties? Are they, um, they paying for the film out front? They just do a flat rate for licensing it. Uh, and a lot of filmmakers have talked about this, that 
they, you know, I think a lot of people would prefer to have that data, but they protect that data like it's gold because mm. they use that data in their purchasing decisions. So I am 100% certain that in their decision to get our film, they looked at, okay, how much of our audience watches controversial documentaries on particular subjects? Um, what is that worth to us? Uh, you know, they want to buy things that will cause people to sign up new to their platform and then retain the people who've already gotten on it. And so they are, I, they are really guarding of that data. I mean, I know, for example, House of Cards was greenlit because they looked at their data and they found that people who really liked David Fincher films also really liked Kevin Spacey as an actor. And they said, okay, we need a project that brings those two together because that's what our data suggests you should do. Uh, so it, it pays pretty well. It's enough that I, uh, I'm, I'm able to live off that for the, the time while it's on Netflix, but uh, it's not enough to get rich. But, but again, there, I, there... I'm selling an independent documentary. You know, it might be different if it was like a blockbuster. If I was licensing a Marvel film, I'm sure it'd be way more than that. But do you get paid per play, per spin? Flat for... rate. Just a flat rate. So whatever yeah. you got paid, you'll never make any more from Netflix on that film again, right? No, but we're on we're on all the different platforms. We're on Amazon and iTunes and Vimeo. And after it's not on Netflix, people can get it there. So you can still sell your film on other places. Yeah. If you sell exclusive to Netflix and do what they call an original, which is on the platform indefinitely, I think it's more. But we want this to, you know, one of the things that I, I, I heard from our audience is that they wanted to have physical copies they could give to someone who they knew was having kids and say, you need to watch this before you have kids. You need to be aware of this issue. So I'm, uh, we would be giving away more rights to the film to the, to do that. And I'm, I'm glad that we ended up in the position we're in. Mm, okay. Yeah. I, mean, I just wanted to see how Netflix works over there. I know uh, Monique, the comedian had some controversy with Netflix and I don't think she understood exactly how this new era works. You know, she comes from a time time period where uh, analytics didn't really exist like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, to be honest, I, I think on future projects, I would consider less money for more analytics because I also see the huge value of that. But as mm -hmm. a first time filmmaker, you know, trying to get my first film on that platform, it's not the leverage or that request. <laughs> So let's talk about the film, man. Um, let's talk about motivations, why you wanted to choose this topic. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the issue of circumcision and the film itself is one that I know is at times surprising or shocking to a lot of people. It's not an issue that most people think about on a regular basis, which if you think about it is kind of strange because it is an issue that affects every man in America every partner of a man, every parent and child, everyone who's have had children or having children. And yet, and in fact, in the most personal way possible in a way that you, you might not be able to change later in life. And yet we don't talk about it. And I think part of the reason people don't talk about it is because, you know, it involves sex and politics and religion and all these really taboo topics. And it brings up all these uncomfortable feelings of like, okay, well, if there's something wrong with that, and that happened to me, like, what does that mean about me? Like, what does that mean about my body? What does that mean about my sexuality? You know, what does that mean about my relationship with my family? Did they do something wrong? Like, should I be mad at them? 
Um, and so I think people avoid it for all of those reasons. But for me as a filmmaker, I'm drawn to it for the same reasons, because I'm interested in those deeper identity level questions. And I think that everything that you want to know about persuasion and human nature and human sexuality and how we think about identity and what our values are, you can learn from this issue. And much of the information that I learned when I was first learning about it is not known by most of the public. So when I first started learning about it, I was going through a period in my life where I was doing a lot of inner work. I was reading about how things that happen to you early on in life affect you later in life, um, or in early life psychology and healing work and things like that. I was practicing meditation. And when I ran across this, you know, the other things in my life I could change, right? I could change my mindset. I could change my diet. I could change all these other things, but I couldn't really change that. So I thought like, well, you know, it makes me kind of uncomfortable and like, I don't know what I would do about that. So I'll just, you know, push it out of sight, out of mind. But like I said, I was practicing meditation. During meditation, I had awareness of that issue enter my mind. And in the meditation I do, you know, I'm just present with whatever's there. And so I just felt this really like cold sensation in the body. And I just had um, the word circumcision enter my mind and started feeling like this really uncomfortable. I was actually present with the discomfort the, the issue gave me, you know? Because um, one of the things I notice is when I talk to people about the issue, they'll say like, well, I'm fine and it doesn't affect me all. But the, as they say it, they'll like kind of unconsciously like guard their body or like, I've seen people like literally cover their genitals in response when the topic comes up. And it's like, okay, you're, you're telling me one thing, but your body's telling me another, right? Uh, so, but I, I was present with the discomfort during meditation. I thought, okay, well, some part of my consciousness wants me to look at this and be aware of it. And I went home and I started researching and, and some of the things I found shocked me. Uh, one of the first things I found was that the procedure was often done and is still often done without anesthesia. So, you know, that's like, you can't put a, an infant under full anesthesia, but you can imagine holding a newborn child down, cutting into that part of his body. You know, many activists have told me that hearing the, the screams from that was what made them want to become an activist and change this issue. Uh, and, you know, if you know anything about early life psychology, just not holding a child and not getting proper mother-infant bonding can be really traumatic. So I'm like, okay, what's the effect of holding a child down and cutting part of his body off? And then one of the other things I found was that there is something called foreskin restoration. So what men will do who were circumcised is that they will take the remaining skin and stretch it over time. The same way you might like put a gauge in your ear and stretch your ear out. They'll just take the remaining skin and stretch it until they have a covering of that part of the body. And you know, there's unique nerve endings there you can't get back, but you can get the covering and some of the form and function back. And they report that there's a dramatic change in sexuality. There's much more sensitivity, there's much more pleasure. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm told about this issue. Apparently there's something you can do about it. Um, what else don't I know? And that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of research and all of the stuff that eventually became the film. So I brought up all the identity level issues that I find really fascinating and interesting. It was something where people hadn't done a really deep look at it before. And there was just information I felt like people needed to know. And I love film. I've been making films since I was 14. And it made sense to do that, to share this information. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you, you know, you, you're, you're, you're tackling this subject. Like you said, it's sometimes taboo, um, quite controversial. 
Um, I think a lot of people harbor some guilty feelings, right? Like when mm -hmm. they have their children do it. So now because they are guilty of the act, they want to defend it as if, you know, there's some sort of professional. Um, yeah. How do you feel uh, in regards to that? You know, the people that are defensive when it comes to this subject, what do you think some of, where some of that stuff comes from? It makes sense to me. If you did something and then you find out that it might not have been the best decision, there's going to be a natural response to feel like, well, if I did something bad, that must mean I'm a bad person and I don't want to see myself as a bad person. So like, I have to defend that and say that it's good. As opposed to, um, I think that what being a really good parent or person means is sometimes admitting your mistakes and saying, you know, at the time we had the best of intentions and we thought that that was what we were supposed to do. And now we have new information. And one of the things I'm grateful for is that in my own life, I have parents who update their beliefs when they get new information. And mm -hmm. I think that that's what rational people do. And that's what I mean, actually, it is being able to be present with that. But there is some discomfort of like, oh, I did this thing. And you know, I get why you might want to take the, the cognitive shortcut of just saying, uh, I've never made a mistake. You know, as, as a parent, I've never done anything wrong, right? Which is, of <laughs> course, you know, when you, when you frame it that way, it's like, well, of course, you've done some things wrong, but. Right, right, right. Oh, man. Um, so we were talking about Africa. You hit me the other day and you said that there's something happening. There's something happening on the 13th. Yeah. Um, what's like what's uh, can you hear that noise? I can actually. It sounds like there might be something happening outside outside on the street by you. There's a lot of traffic signs. Yeah, hold on one second. Hold on one second, you know. All right. We'll we'll leave the audience with an open loop. Come back to the, the recent news later. It's, my it's fault, actually, my fault. no, this is, this is diegetic noise to underline what we're about to talk about. We need to sound the alarm. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so that's actually that we, you're, you, that, that there's nothing happening outside. You're placing that in as like sound, sound effects and ambience to, to <laughs> underscore what I'm about to talk about. So I appreciate that. Really <laughs> yeah, right. Value right there. Word up. So, yeah. So tell me what's happening on the 13th. Um, what's the event that's happening on the 13th? So PEPFAR, the President Fund for African AIDS Relief, is uh, recently released some new guidelines. And I have to give a little background so that people understand like why this is relevant to the issue of circumcision, because you think like, okay, well, stopping AIDS in Africa, like what's I have no idea how that would even be related to this issue, right? But um, one of the things that I cover in the film is that there were basically the reason that people have given for circumcision is always whatever the issue of the day is, right? So it goes all the way back to, you know, in the early Victorian era, they said that circumcision would cure masturbation. That's actually how it got started as a medical practice. They said, well, masturbation is the cause of all these social and moral ills. And if we just remove the most sensitive part of a man's body, then uh, people will stop doing that, right? Uh, of course, that's, that didn't work. Um, but as time went on, whatever the issue of the day is, they would say, well, that, that's what circumcision cures. So in the 70s, it was uh, STDs, and at one point it was penile cancer. And in the late 80s, early 90s, 
one of the uh, circumcision proponents in the medical community said, you know, a lot of these reasons are getting debunked. Um, we need to find an, uh, something that'll keep this going. And they came up with the idea of that circumcision will prevent or reduce the risk of AIDS and HIV, but somehow the transmission rate of that will be brought down. And so they did these big studies in Africa to see if that was true. And they were backed by Johns Hopkins and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, the Clinton Foundation gave money to them. And what they found was, uh, well, first of all, the studies were really strangely carried out, right? So there's a lot of errors in them. More people left the study than stayed in. Uh, the people involved were given significant amounts of money to be a part of them, which, you know, in America, we would consider that unethical. You can't give huge sums of money to people because then they'll just tell you the results that you want from the study. But they can get away with that in Africa because there's not the same regulation. Um, and there were a bunch of contra studies that found the opposite of what they, but they basically, they, you know, their conclusion was uh, exactly what they set out to find, which is that circumcision reduces the risk of HIV and AIDS, right? That was their claim. Um, of course, in this, the, the, the study, uh, one of, I interviewed the researchers who were behind those studies, and one of the things that they told me uh, on camera in the film, which you can see for yourself, is that the group that was circumcised used condoms at a higher rate. Now, if you bring, like we all know, condoms reduce the risk of you know, HIV and STDs in general. If you factor that in, and keep in mind that the difference between the groups uh, was a 1.3 or 1.6 absolute risk reduction. Well, if one group's using condoms at a higher rate, then that sounds like it would explain what's going on. But again, oh, there's all these other factors of like more people left the study than stayed in, and um, they were giving large sums of money to people involved in it. And um, there, were, there were a bunch of contra studies that showed the opposite. Oh, and they also found that it increased the transmission risk to women. So if a man is HIV positive and circumcised, he's more likely to transmit that to a woman. But they just sort of you know, ignored all that data, ignored all the contra studies, ignored all the criticism of the studies and said, uh, that's why we need the, the United States government and all these big NGOs to give us giant piles of money to circumcise Africa and went ahead with that. So in the film, there's another moment where Hillary Clinton talks about giving $40 million to, to do circumcisions in Africa from PEPFAR. So this is your tax dollars. Um, PEPFAR is a, is a government program. And they went ahead to do basically a whole bunch of circumcisions in Africa using money that would have gone to other AIDS prevention things. Uh, and that brings us to today, where they released a report, their, their new draft proposal for 2020, in which they said that they were ending the infant circumcision program in Africa because they had any adverse events or botches. And they released this report right before Thanksgiving. So it's right before Thanksgiving. It's only open to public comment until December 13th. Um, it's kind of in, it seems to me like if you wanted no one involved in the media or press to see something, that's the time you'd release it. Is that nice, like right between Christmas and Thanksgiving, right before a holiday, so it's not, you know, newsworthy later. But the report, I don't, I don't want to go too far with this, but it read to me almost like an admission of a crime <laughs> in terms of the things that they said. Because if you take circumcision out of it, what the report basically said was that they had used an unsafe medical device that had previously been the subject of a lawsuit on millions of African children 
and that they were going to stop doing that because there was such a high incidence of complications and botches, and that they were planning on using a new device to find out just what the risks involved with it were on millions of African children, which, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, but I don't think the way that you test a medical device is to use it on millions of African children. It seems to me to be something unethical there. And what the report was basically calling for was human experimentation. Uh, oh, and they're going to use uh, millions of your tax dollars to do it because, you know, that, that, that alone wasn't enough, right? And, and, and I think people, they get, when they read this stuff, they get sort of aspect of miss just the obvious of corruption and uh, spreading of money. And oh, this is all money. It's supposed to be going towards AIDS prevention. So there's a lot of layers to that to break down because when they first instituted this program, they said, we're going to do it, you know, they call it a voluntary male circumcision program, meaning that, you know, if you're an adult and you want to get a circumcision, then they would provide it, right? And I don't think that any activists had a huge issue with that. Um, the activists that I interviewed in, in the film, they all say, like, men should have a choice about their bodies, and to cut off a part of a child's body without their consent is bad, like, they should be able to make a choice. But if you're an adult, you know, you can do whatever you want to your body. Um, you can do all sorts of things as an adult that other people might think aren't good, and we're totally okay with that, right? You're an adult. Um, but then as they, when they started doing that, they said, well, we're not getting a lot of men signing up for this. Um, maybe we need to target teens to get them to do it because they're going to be more likely to comply, and we can get their parents to come make them do it, right? Uh, and then they said... Well, also let's target infants, which you know is huge change in in not just the ethics involved, because doing something to an infant who can't consent is ethically different than doing it to an adult who's making an informed choice. Although their, their informed information is not always they're not always deeply informing the men involved, right? One of the other things that people talked about was, okay, they're telling these men that. Um, if you get circumcised, then the risk of you know HIV is decreased. Does that mean they're going to engage in more high risk behaviors? And that's like a whole other topic, you know. Oh, I, you know, it's fine. I don't need to wear a condom because I got circumcised, right? So they they changed from a voluntary male circumcision program to an infant circumcision program, um, and it also doesn't make sense because if you do that under the guise of AIDS prevention, one, an infant's not having sex, right? Like babies just aren't doing that, and when they are 18 years later, the entire, you know, AIDS and HIV landscape could be different. So President Trump is talking about how he wants that to be eliminated in Africa within 10 years. Uh, and a lot of other politicians and NGOs have said the same thing, that they're going to apply all this money and resources towards things like a cure or a vaccine. Why would you do something that is a permanent surgical change to an infant to protect him from something he won't be at risk at for 18 years? when in 18 years there could be a cure or a vaccine. Because, let I me mean, look how much technology has progressed in 20 years. Where will it be 20 years from now? So the whole program didn't make sense. But then they canceled it, not because of all these ethical concerns, not because of the research underlying it was questionable, but because they had done it so poorly that apparently there was a high enough rate of complications and adverse events that they didn't feel like they could continue it. So they hurt so many kids doing this. They had things go wrong during the surgery, but they couldn't continue it. And I, I think that this occurred because they were using a device called the Mogan clamp. So the Mogan clamp is a particular circumcision device that we cover in the film that was the subject of a lawsuit. And the original 
company manufactured and got sued out of business because their device was prone to errors. So it, I think the reason that they might have used it is because it's they, you can do it quickly, but there's nothing in the device to guard it from accidentally capturing the head of the penis in it and chopping that off too. Which, yeah, I mean, it's uncomfortable to think about. And I've seen photos of these botches. It's really grotesque. Um, and it is a common error with that device, which that lawsuit happened before they chose this as the standard of their program, right? So it's like, you should have known that. Like, you shouldn't use a medical device where the manufacturer's already been sued out of business. Um, and apparently they had such a high rate of adverse events that they're going to cancel that. Now, we don't know how many in the program were infants, but PEPFAR has claimed that they have done 22.8 million circumcisions. 22.8 million. So if 1% of that are botches, then that is 200,000 children who have had some part of their glands removed that was not intended or had something go wrong during the procedure. And I want to put that in context. I mean, we interview one person in the film whose child had that happen, where um, he had a circumcision error where all of the shaft skin was removed. Not some, all. So there's basically just a nub remaining. And I'm sorry if that's too graphic for some people, but, um, you know, that's going to change someone's life. Like, they're going to have a very different experience of life and relationships as a result of that. And so to do that on such a massive scale is a crime. I mean, it feels it feels like it's it's very obviously malpractice to use an unsafe medical device on millions of people. And I don't I don't know how they're not going to get sued for this in some way. Now, add to that that part of the program was that they were trying to get their rates up, so they were paying people to come have this done. And so there were cases where children were being brought to the circumcision clinics without their parents' consent. And one newspaper in Kenya in their investigation said that this was 35,000 children that this had happened to. By the way, in one African country, they don't know, across the entire program. So how many of those kids who had these botches weren't even supposed to be there or their parents didn't even know they were there? But the report doesn't give the exact rate. They said it's so high that we're going to cancel the program. So I, I, I was guesstimating it at 1%, but, you know, it could be 10%, which would be 2 million if it was of the whole group. Again, we don't know how many of that group were infants. We don't know the exact data. Uh, so it could be higher. And the fact that they didn't put that data out is a little suspicious and the kind of thing that a good investigative reporter would track down. But, you know, keep in mind, they released this right before Thanksgiving. Um, in order to know that the Mogan clamp was sued out of business, you have to have very particular knowledge of the legal cases around this, which we cover in our film. And you have to have seen that report. And you have to have, you know, some knowledge of these campaigns. So you're looking at like a very small category of people who are even And this is all impeachment. There are things that are sucking up the news cycle. So I don't know that there's been a lot of investigative research on this, which is crazy when you think about you know, a story in which the United States government 
is using an unsafe medical device on millions of African children. I, I think there's a story here, and I think that this indicates a lot of corruption. Now, so this is, I just want to clarify really fast for the people sure. in the chat and the people watching. Uh, we're talking about PEPFAR here, P-E-P-F-A-R. This is a president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. Yeah. Um, this was launched by uh, George Bush back in 2003. So basically, this program is pulling money from the United States. Uh, looks like uh, $80 billion, uh, according to the Wikipedia page here. I don't know what date that's up to, but uh, they're using American resources to allegedly combat AIDS in Africa. Um, focus countries include uh, Botswana, Cote d'Ivoire, Ethiopia, Guyana, Haiti, Kenya, Mozambique, Namibia, Nigeria, South Africa, Tanzania, Uganda, Vietnam, and Zambia. <laughs> it's one of those things that on the surface sounds good, right? Like you want to stop, you know, AIDS overseas. Like, don't you want to stop HIV? Like, oh yeah, like I think that's a good idea. I'll vote for that, you know? Uh, even though this is, you know, the president's thing, it's not, it's not, I don't know that it's something that we directly vote for, but the way that it's carried out is that there's a series of unelected bureaucrats making those decisions. You know, they've posted on the state department and there's a room for comment on their new, you know, policy thing that they've set up, but. I don't know how seriously they're going to take those comments. You know, when they first were going to implement this circumcision plan, there were a lot of activists who said that's a terrible idea. Um, you know, circumcising millions of Africans isn't going to reduce the HIV rate. Like, that doesn't make sense. We have incredibly high rates of circumcision in America, and yet HIV is a bigger problem here than it is in non-circumcising countries. Um, you know, places like Europe and Asia, uh, where they don't practice circumcision, have relatively low rates, and places like America, where we practice circumcision, have really high rates. So the way that it's being carried out strikes me as very corrupt, because the moment you throw $80 billion towards something, there's going to be some people who look at that and go, I could take a piece, you know, who's going to notice in the pile of money that big if some of the funds go to this circumcision program. right? And that brings me to the, the thing they're talking about now is they said, well, we, we use this one device and it hurt a bunch of people. So we're going to stop doing that. But we have this new device that we could try um, and we're going to use that. And instead of using it on infants, we're going to use it on teenagers. And we don't know that the specific wording in the, their document says, um, something to the effect of very high volumes may be needed to identify the risks which is an insane statement. Like we have to use this device a lot just to find out what the risks of it are. And I, I read that and I go like, no, you don't. Like you don't need to use a medical device on tons of people to find out if it's safe. You need to wait until you know if it's safe to decide to use it on uh, you know, millions of people, let alone people who are you know, under the age of consent and already in an at-risk population and all of these other you know, ethical issues. So, they're going to use this device. Uh, their plan is to use it with a device called the Shang Ring, which is a disposable circumcision device made in China. And 
it's a very strange choice because there was previously a similar device called the Prepex that they decided not to use. And there's an article where, where the creator of that device is complaining about WHO, World Health Organization regulations. Uh, and they were requiring things like, the tone of the article is like, oh, they're just requiring too much regulation so we can't compete. But like the regulations they're requiring are things like a sterile room to do the procedure in. And it's like, I think that's a reasonable request for, you know, life-altering surgery, that at least the room is sterile. Um, but basically, the device is something that you clamp on and leave on for a while, and it basically suffocates the blood flow to that part of the body until it falls off. Again, like, you tell, like, it's uncomfortable even to think about these things, let alone using them on huge populations. Uh, and... When I interviewed a pediatric urologist in my film, who does circumcisions, by the way, um, he's for the procedure, but he also does botch repair. He said, I see an error from a, the prepex, a similar device. He says, I see those errors regularly, where if you don't put it on tight enough, then that skin becomes infected. So he talks about people getting like gangrene, for example, from this, because, well, if you're cutting off the blood flow, but it's still attached, there's room for infection, right? Um, so he's like, I don't even think that device should be on the market. I think it's unsafe. I've had a lot of other people tell me that similar devices are unsafe. So I don't know that this is going to be any safer. But I, I also suspect that there are some other ulterior reasons it's being chosen. So this is a disposable device. So if you bought the other device, you could buy one and then you could reuse it. And that was a single time purchase. This you have to buy a new one every time they do the procedure. There's so much more money in that. It's a little plastic piece. You know, you could probably manufacture it for 25 cents in China and then charge medical device rates for each one, right? And they're going to use this millions of times. That's a huge contract. And the other crazy thing is that there have been cases, and I don't know if this is true that far. I want to be clear on that. But there have been cases where circumcision device manufacturers are involved in writing the policy for large organizations like WHO, World Health Organization, involved in writing their policy on circumcision, which again, like huge conflict of interest, you know, if a guy who makes a device writes policy that says, you should buy my device, like, you know, shocking that that was the outcome and that the thing that he chose. So this PEPFAR report doesn't have an author on it. Like, I wonder what, like, how did they choose Shangring? Well, how do they choose the Mogan clamp? Who's making these decisions? What sort of safety review are they doing? I don't know if any of that's even happening. It's not in the report, um, whatever process they're doing with that. And the report seems to indicate that they don't know what the risks are and they're just gonna find out. And then the other crazy thing about the Shangring is that it's a Chinese made device, which is again, a little weird that the uh, president, you know, American NGO, or excuse me, the, the president's plan for AIDS relief is buying a device from China. I mean, there's probably a political joke in there somewhere. But uh, it's also strange because that device, the, the creator of it is trying to promote circumcision in China. So China doesn't practice circumcision. It's not really been a part of their culture, but he's trying to promote it under a similar, you know, disease prevention, medicalized plan. And I have to wonder if the people involved aren't buying this device so that they can set it up for the Chinese market. Because if you're the, the device that's been chosen by the United States government, well, that's a great selling point, right? And every company is trying to break into the Chinese market. Now, I have to wonder if this isn't involved in like a desire among people who promote circumcision 
to, to get that happening over there. So it's a really weird decision. It's one that I don't think is safe. And it's one that, according to this report, I don't know if they've even bothered to figure out if it's safe. Uh, it so, certainly doesn't make sense either for the, you know, supposedly this is all happening to prevent HIV and AIDS. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. Again, I don't think the science supports it. Um, but it's really strange. So this uh, draft report they put out is open for public comment until December 13th. That's, that is the amount of time they've allotted for it. And their, their guidelines say that you need to be really specific in your comments, meaning I, I think that they're going to try to tune out anything that is a philosophical you know, rant in any way. If you say, like, why are you even doing this? This doesn't make any sense. I think they're going to put it more right. But something like a safety risk is something that they might listen to. Uh, and asking for more data. So, like, I want to know, like, how, what was the rate of adverse events? Like, I think that's something that if our, our tax dollars are going towards this, we have the right to know. Like, just how many children did you injure? Uh, what is the rate of adverse events in which they think it's not okay? So, well, they start using the Shangring and it has similar issues. How many are you going to do before you call this off as unsafe? You know, these are questions that their stuff doesn't answer and it kind of hides behind the language of public policy for, of like, well, you know, many uh, high volumes may be needed to determine, like, it's like, no, 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 yeah. that's not how medical device testing should work. Yeah. Now, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like somebody has uh, a motive or an agenda and the agenda is so ridiculous you know the the act of the agenda the the extensions of this agenda are so ridiculous that to cover it up you know is nearly uh to cover it up i should say in front of an intelligent mind is nearly impossible you know for yeah. the average person they're like whatever whatever right but for the, you know people that are actually paying attention if you if you think about the process you know it, it's not that hard to see how evil and sadistic and disgusting this yeah. plan is i mean clamping something on and waiting for it to fall off are you serious yo? like like that just yeah. that doesn't even it doesn't even sound like something uh a doctor would 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 do you know um you know outside of uh a life-threatening situation you know um it's just, this is crazy, man. So let me ask you this. Um, what's the deal with Hillary? I, I was reading one of your blog posts on your website and uh, said Hillary Clinton was, uh, I guess, funneling some money into the foundation. So the Clinton Foundation has given a lot of money to these circumcision for AIDS prevention programs. So has the Gates Foundation. When I actually went and interviewed the authors of one of these studies on circumcision and HIV it was at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for HIV Prevention. I don't know what the motive is, but it seems really shady. And I, I it's the kind of thing where you'd have to do a lot of investigative journalism to figure it out. Uh, I know that there are things that people will read into that. And I know that people who have uh, these, you know, NGO programs have told me that they don't, they don't give without expecting something in return. So it may just be that they can get a lot of 
the, the, the giving to Africa is with the expectation that certain things will flow in return, and I don't know what that is. So you'd have to get really into their business and financials and motivations to figure that out. Uh, I do know that doesn't make sense from a scientific perspective. And, you know, like you said, it's the kind of thing where if you're paying attention, it doesn't make sense, but it does look good as a headline, right? Like Clinton Foundation gets a lot of money to prevent AIDS in Africa. Like, wow, that sounds nice. That's so good of them to do, you know? Yeah. Um, as a headline, it reads good. And it's the same, the same is true of a lot of Bill Gates philanthropy. Uh, but I know that one of the things I've heard from other journalists is that the medical and pharma companies really like Africa because they can get away with testing that they could not get away with in other places. So in America, if you want to do a test of a medical device or drug, you have a lot of regulation you have to follow. If you do it in Africa and you go to the government first and you say, hey, we're going to give millions of dollars to your country and we're going to give you this brand new American medical care. And also while we're here, we're going to run some drug trials and we're going to do some other things. And we're going to test some vaccines and we're going to do this circumcision program. Uh, they will sometimes take the money because they need it. And there's a huge disparity of power and wealth there. And then they can, you know, get away with doing certain things that might not be ethical or legal in the United States. Mm -hmm. So, but again, like, is that the reason they're doing it? I don't know. I don't know what their motivation is. I know that when you just look at what their, the results of their actions are, it looks really shady. But, you know, to know what their intention or motivation is would require seeing into someone else's heart and... Uh, I don't know if our constitution is such that we could look into that woman's heart or anyone, you know, any of the people involved in this and, and uh, be able to tell what's going on in there. So yeah. I, I, can't, I can't answer the motivation question. And I, again, like, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you told me that they were, if you could prove the motivation was that they were intentionally trying to hurt those populations, it might make sense with some of the things that they do. If you told me that they were just really ignorant and they had a bunch of money and they handed it off to someone and said, make sure you do good, and that person was handling it ineptly, it probably, that might fit also, but I don't know. Mm. So uh, there's uh, some controversy about Iceland a few months back about circumcision mm -hmm. as well. Um, what do you think about that? And do you think that ties into some sort of global uh, circumcision agenda? So Iceland was recently considering banning infant circumcision. And they, uh, they, they were just, they said, we have a law against female genital cutting. We should have a law against male genital cutting and against all you know, non-consensual surgeries on infants. Like you have the right to make your own choices about your body, cutting off part of a woman's body without her consent is not okay, cutting off part of a man's body without his consent isn't okay. And the response that they got was not a moral or ethical argument. It was basically NGOs like the ADL saying, if you do this, we'll make sure that we kill tourism there and we're going to impose economic sanctions and things like that. So I think that these organizations recognize that there isn't really an ethical argument for what they're doing, but that they have the power and the money and they're willing to wield it. 
So that's basically what happened with Iceland is they received massive international pressure. And by the way, some of it from the United States. So I have heard from people working on this issue in European countries that when they get close to any kind of legislation, people from the United States embassy show up and say, yeah, maybe don't do that. Uh, which, you know, why is this an issue of, you know, international diplomacy for the United States? Like, does anyone in the United States really care what the circumcision policy of Nordic countries is? I don't think that anyone involved in the United States, like, you know, like, why, why is this something that people are trying to use our military and economic power to prevent? That's really weird, right? Uh, and I don't... As far as there being an agenda, again, I don't know. I've heard some things about that. Um, I want to be careful here not to try to guess at the motives of others, but just look at what they do. Because I find when you don't understand what someone is doing, you know, their actions will sometimes reveal it. So I'll give you an example of one of the actions, especially in the uh, African Circumcision Program. There was an African circumcision program carried out by an NGO that was called Operation Abraham that was being run by a number of Jewish groups. And that's kind of a weird title. You know, one of the things that um, activists pointed out to me when I was making the film was like, why not call it like Operation Stop AIDS or Operation Stop HIV? Like, that's if that's what you're supposedly trying to do, like, why is it called Operation Abraham? Um, it strikes me as a really insensitive name because when you get into the biblical command given to Abraham, which is in Genesis 17, 11, the command is that you should circumcise Jewish children. And the second, you know, which I don't, I don't think that that's what they see Africa as, but you should circumcise Jewish children. And then the second category is foreigners bought at market or slaves. So the, they, the, command Abraham, the command given to Abraham is that you should circumcise Jewish children and slaves. Okay. So they named the program to circumcise Africa Operation Abraham. I don't know what reference they're trying to make there, but it, you know, in a in a as politically correct an age as we live in, I have a little bit of an issue with that name. I just there's some implications there that are really grotesque and insensitive. Um, even the way that the program is being carried out, like the implication of it is that somehow, you know, Africans aren't capable of using and we just can't rely on them to do that. So we have to cut parts of their body off, right? Like it's really, the assumptions behind it strike me as really racist and bizarre. And so I don't know what the underlying motivation is, but I know that the way it's being carried out is with an attitude of, basically we have the power and we get to do what we want, you know? Um, and as far as how that is coordinated or which other groups fit into it, um, there is some research I've seen on that, but it is not, it's not at a point where I would start publishing it. You know, there's a, there's a thing in investigative journalism where you don't necessarily want to publish till you have the full story. I have pieces of the story, but it's not, you know, when you're looking at groups like the Clinton Foundation and the Gates Foundation uh, or government agencies. Now, you said uh, who's running that? Journalism to figure out what's going on in those. But I do. Go ahead. 
Yeah, you said who's running the Operation Abraham? I believe that's run by an Israeli organization. Uh, I could look that up real quick. One second. Now I'm looking up. No, nah, just keep talking. I got it. Uh, I'll have it in a second. But I actually know that a lot of the um, there a lot of the training at WHO and other places is being carried out by Jewish uh, moils, which are ritual circumcisers. So the other thing I thought is that maybe the Mosin clamp was chosen because it is their preferred device. It's often the one used in traditional Jewish circumcision. Um, again, like another possibility, we don't know. It could have been chosen because it's quicker. And so if you're using it in an African setting, you can do more in less time, although doing them in less time leads to more errors. There are other devices that are safer, but they take longer and are more painful. So there's, a, again, like there's a lot of, of questions that haven't been researched. And I think part of the reason they haven't been researched is because the headline, you know, this thing prevents HIV is really nice, comfy headline that feels good to people. And if you do start researching them, uh, people will make a lot of weird accusations. So it's like, oh, well, you're questioning circumcision. Like, does that mean you must just hate Jewish people? Is that what that's about? You know, like if you're if you're like concerned that millions of American tax dollars are going to harm millions of African children, like obviously that must just have something to do with Jews and like that you don't like them. So uh like where's that coming from you know and i think that the press especially is really sensitive to that and especially if you work in any kind of corporate press or mainstream press any kind of thing that you do that could lead to that accusation could cost you your job so they haven't really investigated this and you know like i said like you would be looking at organizations like the clinton foundation and the gates foundation and groups that already have a lot of political power that would make journalists not want to go there damn yeah i mean i'm looking at it right now it says operation abraham is an organization whose sole purpose is to promote circumcision any which way it can headed by iron shanker um and then when i go to iron shanker's thing he basically uh, this article here corroborates what you said it says opponents to operation abraham argue shanker were led by ignorance or cruelty or anti-Semitism, which always seems to be the uh, the way to dodge, you know, what we're talking about here is not hate. We're talking yeah. about the actual act of harming people, like, you know, and which, which just, you know, makes your mind kind of wonder, like, why would you want to deflect from this so, so hard? Yeah, it's worth noting too that these programs have no relate like legally they're not they can't even have any religious intention or significance so it's one of these things that comes up where uh, whenever you get into the issue of circumcision there's a lot of what you might call thought terminating cliches meaning that like you start reaching you know you start doing some questions or some research and people will put it in a category that makes it so you can't think about it anymore so like Oh, what do you mean? You're saying there's something wrong with my body? Like, oh, what do you mean? Are you saying that there's, there's something you know, like that the Jews are bad? Like, is that what you're trying to say? And so that sort of thought terminating cliche or like uh, box that people will try to put an argument in prevents you from looking at, say, where 40 million tax dollars is going or what the adverse, you know, 
rate of events has been for uh, circumcisions in this PEPFAR program or things like that. Things that force you to get into the details, the things like the money and like the harm and what the actual result of these programs has been. Uh, if they can sort of keep you in the area of uh, generalizations, then you don't get into the details. But the details is where all of the evidence is, right? Hell uh, yeah. So we got a... Uh the 13th coming up, how can people get involved in this thing? And like, what's the call to action here? So there's a link uh, on my blog and one that I'll tweet out and I'll share with you for this new PEPFAR guidelines. Their stuff says you need to reference a specific part. So leave a very well thought out specific comment telling them not to use the Shang Ring or continue their program at all. I think that they do deserve praise and, and support for their ending of the infant circumcision part. Uh, even if they're they're haven't fully considered all of the ethical implications or anything like that, just ending it because causing people harm is a good thing. But leave a message and say like, we don't want you to test another unsafe device on millions of African children. And, and I think the other thing that you can do too is that this issue is something that is on a tipping point or close to a tipping point. And it's, so it's the kind of thing where if you do some, anything on this issue, because there isn't a, you know, a big funder or a George Soros or Peter Thiel figure, and because there isn't, uh, you know, there's a few, actually I take that back, there's a few large celebrities who talked about it, but there are, there's room, the, because this issue is still hitting the public consciousness, the more that you do, the bigger impact it will have. You know, if you write something about, uh, mainstream politics or uh, an issue everyone's already talking about, like people already know. Like th I think you know they've heard of they've heard of uh, immigration and climate change and like people are aware of those things, but people aren't as aware of this issue. So the things that you can do to share or help on it are going to go further. But for this specific one, uh, writing a response to that PEPFAR guidelines, just saying. Don't use this new device. You know, thank you for ending this one thing. We'd like more information on it, but like continuing the program in any form is not okay. Yo, shout out to everybody in the chat. If you want to ask a question, go ahead and super chat. I got a super chat here from Cloud Star, ten dollars. Thank you. He says if Gates and Clintons are involved, then it sounds like it could be for population control, but not sure how. Any comment on that? So I've heard that theory, uh, and one of the I've seen that clip where Gates, Bill Gates, sort of maybe accidentally says that he's a fan of vaccines for population control. Uh, part of the difficulty is that with those theories, there is certainly smoke, but there's not conclusive fire. And so when I talk about the issue, I try to stick to exactly what I can show and prove. And I think that something like that is worth exploring or investigating further. But I don't have enough that I could say, like, that's exactly why he's doing it and this is the motivation. And so I don't know. I, I, I can only give you what is, I mean, what I've talked about tonight is all in PEPFAR's own report. Like, you can go and read their statement and it makes those things very clear. Right. But right. as far as like what they might be doing behind closed doors, I don't know. I got to get back into uh, 
my William Cooper. I haven't uh, brushed up on my William Cooper information in a while. You familiar with William Cooper? I am not. William Cooper wrote the book uh, Behold the Pale Horse. And uh, in I this book, I've heard of that. Yeah. And in this book, he talks about um, the AIDS agenda um, and spreading of disease, so on and so forth, um, you know, for the point of population control. I'm not sure if he mentions uh, the Bushes. This might have been before this program. Um, but uh, the conspiracy theory of George, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Bill Gates being involved in population control has circulated conspiracy theory circles for at least a decade now, if not longer. Um, so I understand where uh, Homeboy in the chat is coming from, where Cloudstar is coming from uh, with that. Uh, but uh, like Brendan said, you know, a lot of times we get, you could actually hurt, hurt your credibility by saying something like that, right? Like saying, hey. Yeah, because I don't like, I don't know what his motivation is. I, I'm not inside his head. Uh, I haven't had a personal conversation with him. I understand why people might assume that those in positions of power are willfully and intentionally harming others because that's so often the result of their actions is that people are hurt. And if someone outside those programs or just reading the news or watching things online can so clearly see the harm, then obviously someone with the access to information and resources he has must also be able to see it. And if he's aware of the harm he's causing and he's still doing it, well, then it must be intentional, right? I understand that thinking. But at the same time, I'm always shocked when I talk to people how little their awareness is. I don't know that awareness is something that comes from information or knowledge or reading. It seems to come from personal development or empathy or compassion or spirituality or things like that. And what access does someone in a position of power have to that that is somehow greater or more than we have, you know? So I don't, I don't know what his motivation is. And I wouldn't, uh, I don't think that you need to imply the motivation to understand why the program might be a bad idea. And you may not even need to get into that to do the activism necessary to change it. Because right. it strikes me that the activism necessary to change it is not necessarily applying pressure to him. It's fair enough who in PEPFAR's structure is making these decisions. Because even if he is contributing money to these programs, someone on the ground or someone in a policy position approved these devices and approved this as part of the budget. You know, it's possible that these decisions came from on high, but at the same time, they're being executed by everyday people who are just, you know, quote unquote, doing their job. And, and change could happen at any of those levels. So I suspect that even if you have a greater awareness of the harm someone like that is doing, you, the, th the place that you may need to raise your awareness is the understanding of the process by which they're doing it. And I'll bet that is someone that something like something that something that someone like him understands really well. I'll bet he really understands the business and nonprofit and structure necessary to execute something like that. And if you can understand that enough too, then you might have the activist skills necessary to change them.
Yeah, yeah. You know, the thing is, uh, you never really want to say too much until you got that concrete proof, you know? Yeah. Until you, you know, you got it. Because otherwise, when you do got it, people might say, hey, you cried wolf last time. You didn't have yep. the evidence to back it up. You know, so we want to, you know, really watch our credibility out here when we talk about these subjects. Um, Brendan, any final thoughts on this subject? Anything we didn't cover yet? You know, one thing that comes up on this issue in general is that there's a lot of issues that can only be changed at the level we're talking about, right? Like changing government programs, changing things that NGOs are doing. But the interesting thing about circumcision is that you have a way of making change on this issue right within your own family and in the personal decisions you make and how you raise your kids. So I would just encourage people if they're having kids or someone they know is having kids to do some research on it. Part of my goal with the film was to take years of research and condense it into something someone could watch in two hours. It's a big ask to tell someone like, hey, can you read all these websites and check out these books and try to expand your mind versus like, hey, do you want to watch a movie? Um, so my goal is to make that research easier. And my hope is that people will watch it and be able to make a better decision for their kids. And you have resources people can read on your website, right? Yes. So, uh, I think the film is the best introduction, but there's way more, especially on the PEPFAR thing on my website, brendamurata.com. And on Twitter, I'm at BD Murata and I'm always posting about this stuff. Yeah. So you think people should start with the film and then, um, yeah. start their research from there, their uh, activist involvement. Where do you, uh, I mean, there's a lot of issues around the world, right? Mm-hmm. Where do you, where do you rank this issue? Um, and, uh, you know, that, that could be unfair to do because we're putting a lot of issues ahead of others. Right. But do you see this tying into anything else, any other overlaps with any other type of problems across the world? I do. So my goal is to make do the most good for the least effort that you can do, so to speak. So doing other things, I don't know if it's more important. It's hard for me to think of something that's more important than how we raise children. But I know that if you change the way that you treat children and the first experiences of their life and what they take in and what they learn as to how they're supposed to be in relationship when they're young, then they will act differently when they're older. So if you hold down a child on the first day of his life and cut into part of his body during the time that he's supposed to be bonding with his mother and make his first shared sexual experience, because we are touching that part of the body to do this, right? Make his first shared sexual experience one of violence in which one imposes their will on another, I think that has a deep lasting effect. And I think if you raise children with love, then they're more likely to become people who are loving. So my thinking with this issue and with the work I do around it in general is that if you can treat children better, they'll create a better world. And this is an easy one. You know, changing the way that you relate to children or the way that you treat your children might require changing you and doing your own healing work perhaps or figuring out like how you have to behave in relationship. But like, it's really simple, just not, just don't hold children down and cut parts of their body off. Like I actually think it's a very easy and simple change to make. 
So in terms of importance, I feel like how we should treat children is the most important thing, and this is the easiest part of it to change. And I don't know if I would rank that as more or less important than other issues, but I feel like those other issues will be easier if we have people who are raised with love working on them. So if you had to theorize, you know, they're saying that they're doing these circumcisions for one reason. They say they're important for another reason. If you had to theorize on what the real reason is, um, you know, without uh, speculating too hard <laughs> and, and becoming a tinfoil hat guy, you know, what do you think that, you know, why do you think they're doing this? Why do you think they, they want to force circumcision across the globe damn near? I think people who are traumatized or un feel unsafe in some way are going to do things either consciously or unconsciously that traumatize others and make them feel unsafe. So it's going to be slightly different for each person or group. For groups that are uh, doing this for, you know, quote unquote, secular reasons, I think if you had this happen to you, then it might actually be psychologically easier to do it to others than face your own feelings about it. And that actually facing those feelings could be so scary that it's just easier to keep perpetuating it. I also think that for uh, Jewish groups, there is a feeling that they're unsafe in a lot of different ways. And I think that they feel unsafe that people would hurt or target them for their identity and so if there's a there because there's a trauma there there's an sometimes an overreaction when something they feel that it, something they feel is part of that identity is criticized so one of the signs of a trauma reaction is an overreaction so for example if, if your parent always beats you with a, a ruler then when someone reaches for a ruler, you might get tense or scared because that trauma is being triggered. And so if people have persecuted or targeted you for your culture, then when someone makes a, even a justified criticism of that culture, there might be a trauma reaction or a trigger that comes out in response to that. And so I suspect that a lot of the defensiveness around this issue comes from a, a desire to feel safe. And I even imagine, you know, even if there were a underlying conspiratorial, uh, even reptilian motivation for this, I think that it would come from a desire to feel safe. And that if you, a feeling that if you're not in power and you're not in like absolute power over people, that you're not safe. So the shift there would be to make them understand that we can do things in a different way and still be safe. So you think uh, circumcision is a display of power? Forced circumcision is, is just a way of to show your dominance and will that you're exerting upon Earth and its inhabitants? Uh, no, I wouldn't categorize it that way. I, I would think that, you know, the uh, the uh, Basically, if you look at circumcision in a tribal setting or in, in infant circumcision in that setting, it's about making the child feel that their body doesn't belong to them. It belongs to the group. So it's very much about 
group cohesion. And this is actually, if you, there's an interview with Joseph Campbell. So to go full circle, you know, at the beginning of this, I was talking about uh, a film critic going through Star Wars, which is very influenced by Campbell's thinking. If you've ever read Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, three pages in, he starts talking about circumcision. And there's an interview in which he says the infant circumcision is about basically making the child's body, making the child understand that his body doesn't belong to him, it belongs to us. And that he is a part of the group and he has to be willing to give up parts of him for, for being a part of that group. My view is that we need to teach children that they can have their whole selves and connection at the same time. So, but I understand how if there's a part of someone that doesn't feel safe, that there might be a desire to remove it. So I don't know that it's about exerting power because the desire that it comes from is actually one of powerlessness and unsafety. So if you were actually truly fully powerful, why would you need to oppress someone else, right? Like, why would you need to hurt them? Because you have your power and they can't take that from you. It's when someone feels threatened that they start hurting others. So I would actually reframe it as like the desire to exert anything over someone else comes from a feeling of powerlessness. Or so at a physical, as a, as a physical, at a physical level, what's happening during the circumcision for a child? I know there's, you know, some 8 million nerve endings go missing and yeah so i this is going to get into some potentially uncomfortable things to hear so i i apologize in advance but the the foreskin is fused to the head of the glands for actually most of a, an early child's life it's kind of like how your fingernail is fused to your finger uh because you know an infant or a child is not using that part of their body the way an adult does so when the child gets older it becomes a gliding mechanism and will slide over the head of the penis and be pleasurable during sexuality but as a child it's attached kind of also like how um you know it's it, people have compared it for example to the female hymen that it's it's something that's there uh early on and then when the person becomes sexually active you know is different so the first thing that happens in a circumcision is that the doctor actually has to break that away. The same way you'd have to, if you were trying to remove someone's fingernail, you'd have to slide something between the finger and the fingernail. And so they will insert like a, basically a blunt probe to do that. And you can imagine that, you know, that alone is very painful. And often children will start screaming and crying when that begins. Um, sometimes they will use anesthesia. They'll use topical anesthesia, which isn't always fully effective. Or they'll do uh, what's called a dorsal penile nerve block, which involves like six different injections with a needle into the penis, which again, not comfortable. And even if they do do that, the child may still feel something. So if you're an adult and you go in and get surgery, you can say, oh, uh, I'm still feeling a bit, I need more anesthesia. And uh, very often, you know, even as an adult, you might, if you get some sort of topical nerve block or something like that, uh, it's not enough and you'll have to tell the doctor like, hey, you know, I, I need a little bit more. But the child can't really give that feedback. Plus, if they use the topical anesthesia, uh, it takes five minutes to be effective and very often doctors don't wait. So if you don't wait the full five minutes, like literally set a timer on your watch, five minutes, then it might as well not be there. So very often they'll say in the report we used anesthesia, but they didn't wait the full five minutes. Or sometimes I've even heard from doctors that they put on the report that they used it and then didn't. So either way, the child is feeling some pain. So they're breaking this away. Um, 
again, like you remove a finger from a fingernail. The most common technique used is what's known as a GOMCO clamp, where they, uh, you know, I mentioned there's a device that basically clamps on and holds it in place and suffocates it, and then there's another one that just slices. The GOMCO is the most common, and it's uh, the both of those things. So they clamp it on, it tightens. Um, one physician described it as like 1,500 elephants on the back of a needle to describe how much pressure is there. It's thousands of tons of pressure. Um, and basically that holds the, in, it in place. Um, and after that's been on for a while, then they actually take it and slice it off. But they basically clamp it and, and basically use pressure to remove it that way. This whole thing, by the way, takes about 20 minutes. And in my film, uh, we show the procedure once. And we show, by the way, the best case version of the procedure. And one of the things that I found when I was screening that for people is they would just skip that scene. Like I did a bunch of test screens, people wouldn't watch it. And the first time, you know, in my earliest edit, it was like, it was a little long. It was like three to six minutes. The whole procedure is actually 20. But people were like, they just couldn't sit through that. But I found no matter how much I shortened it, people would skip it because they as an audience didn't know how long it was going to be. Like I could spring a 20-minute scene on them and they would, you know, have to watch that. So I put it, I ended up having to put a title card at the beginning saying the full procedure is 20 minutes, you know, but we're only going to show you two minutes. And then that way audience members who couldn't watch something like that could step outside or skip it for two minutes and they'd be okay. But that also tells you something that like an adult can't even watch this procedure for the full 20 minutes and a child, the children don't experience time the way that they do. Like when that starts, they don't know, they don't have the cognitive ability to know like this is going to last 20 minutes and then be over. They don't have language. They just know that their whole reality is pain now and it's one of the first experiences of their life and they don't know how long it's going to go on. Like it could go on for an hour. They don't know. Uh, so there's a huge psychological component there. And what, what we, they have found is that infants' cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone, rise significantly during that. Because it used to be doctors would claim, oh, infants don't feel anything, right? Infants don't feel pain was a the claim they made. And of course, the studies have found like, yes, of course, infants feel pain. And not only that, because they're young, because they're learning, they feel things more intensely. So, I mean, if you think about it from a human development perspective, when you're an infant, you need to learn about the world. You have to learn how to walk. You have to learn how to talk. You're constantly taking in information. Uh, why wouldn't they also learn something from this? And so then once they show that they, they actually feel pain and really intense, so intense, by the way, that there's cases where infants' lungs burst because they're screaming so hard during it, uh, cases where they, they pass out. You know, another thing that doctors would say is, oh, like they go to sleep during it. Well, they don't go to sleep. They disassociate mentally because you can't leave physically, you're trapped. They actually have a board that they strap them down to, a four-point restraint called a circumstring. So it's literally, you know, people refer to it as the wreck. It's like you have your arms tied down and your legs tied down, and so they can't move. Uh, and so they, you know, because they can't leave physically, they leave mentally, they just disassociate. And so then they'd say, well, you know, it might be really traumatic, but they don't remember it, right? Okay, how do you show infants experience memory? Well, they, they actually did a study on that. Um, and in this study, they had a whole group of children being vaccinated. And they found one group of children responded way more dramatically to the vaccine. And they would just be hysterical and crying and upset and say, okay, well, why is that? You know, was it not being held? Was it just the conditions of the room? Like, what was it? 
And what they found was it was the group that had been circumcised. So children who were circumcised had a much more dramatic response to pain later. And the researchers attributed this to PTSD. So the infants had a really traumatic experience during circumcision. And then someone did something else in a medical setting that caused them pain and they remembered and the trauma came up again. So the idea that infants remember circumcision is something that has been shown in scientific studies because change in behavior is a form of memory. And it's something that even pro-circumcision people will admit. So the, the, the groups that do circumcision will say, oh yeah, you do have to use anesthesia because of these studies. Um, but then they'll also say, well, we don't know how it impacts adulthood. And it's like, if you've shown that there is memory, there's no evidence that, you know, infant, the, that that memory doesn't continue in some way. And the people I've, I've known who do healing work later in life, you know, preverbal memory goes in very deeply. And so you might not remember it the way that you remember something that happened yesterday or like what you had for breakfast or something like that. You won't remember it the way that there's narrative memory but you remember it as a somatic memory on a sensory level. So that feeling of unsafety or of whatever's in the body might be something that comes from when you're very young or very, very early life experiences. And one of the ways I like explaining somatic memory is, uh, you know, animals don't have narrative memory, but they do have somatic memory. So if you're, you come home, your dog's excited to see you, right? Your dog couldn't tell you a story about what it did yesterday. It couldn't explain the greater meaning of its life, but it has seen you enough to know, like, you're my friend and I'm happy to see you. If you beat your dog with a rolled up newspaper, then when you reached for a rolled up newspaper, your dog would flinch and get scared. But your dog, you know, you know, might not be able to tell a story with that. He has this somatic memory, has an experiential memory. And if you beat your dog with the wrote a load of newspaper and said, oh, it's fine, he won't remember it, people would think you're a monster. But we do that to children because, quote unquote, they won't remember it because they don't have narrative memory, even though they are developing somatic memories and early life experiences that will inform things later on. And this, by the way, people who've been sexually abused in infancy or things like that, they have similar experiences. There's a feeling of unsafety in the body and there's a lot of trauma that you might have to work through later. So, you know, with all of that healing stuff, I've had people ask me like, well, like, how do I know if I have something like that? And the way that you would find that is through the feeling you have as an adult. So it might not still be happening to you, but there's a part of you that has the feeling of it still happening. And if you ever do any kind of healing work, what you would do is you'd go into that feeling and then, you know, let that feeling play out in the way that it wasn't safe to play out at the time. So again, Animals, when you scare them or traumatize them, they shake, right? It's like a, a fear response. Humans tend to freeze, and then they'll store that trauma in some way. And in some way, that's evolutionary, right? Because if you uh, don't experience the trauma at the time, then you might be able to take the action that makes you safe to survive. But at the same time, it might not be good for your emotional health later. But evolution doesn't care about your emotional health. It's evolved to make you survive and pass those genes on. And if trauma allows you to do that, well... You know, if you if that trauma response is what keeps you alive later, then basically there's a part of you that's going to want to continue it. So you ask, this all goes back to the original question, what happens during the procedure? What happens is a lot of pain uh, and to the most sensitive part of the body, pain that has been shown to have a psychological lasting effect. Oh, and then afterwards, you're supposed to, you know, wound care. So the first experiences of that child's life with their mom 
their mom is supposed to like rub Vaseline or some sort of cleaning material on the wound. So that for the next six weeks, there's an, even if there's, you know, the, the procedure is done without any pain, there's an ongoing pain as the wound heals. That's in the underlying formative experiences of life. So mm. I know some people who they, they, they you know, that alone is enough reason for them not to do it. Um, they're not even aware of the stuff around sexuality or other effects like that, but it's a very painful experience. And, and, and people who defend circumcision will say, well, it's my choice as a parent like this. But if you think about it, even if you accept the premise that this is a parenting choice, what are you teaching with that parenting? Like what's your lesson as a parent that you're trying to impart to your kids through that? Uh, you know, I don't know that the the values that you think you're communicating are the ones that you actually want to communicate or the ones that the child is actually receiving through that experience. Right. So what happens to what's the difference between, you know, a grown man with the circumcision and one without? What's their sexual what's the difference between their sexual experiences? So it's a couple different things. Uh, it's it's a lot of what are known as Meisner's corpuscles, which is a unique nerve ending. And it's the same nerves you have in the palm of your hand. So if you run your fingers over the back of your hand, you might not feel a lot, but if you run them over the palm, you might feel more. And, it, and they're sensitivity nerves. So if you run your finger lightly, you actually feel more than if you just like rub your hands together really firmly. Uh, they're also similar to the nerves that you have around the lips and the other openings of the body. And it makes sense that you'd have them there because there's an opening. So, of course, you want nerve endings to know if something's entering the body. You want nerve endings in the area where there's sexuality. And those nerves on the inner lining of the foreskin roll over the head of the penis during sex. So if you remove that, then the penis is basically like a completely straight object with no moving parts. And if you have that, then there's parts of your body that are rolling over or rubbing the head of the penis at the same time and then feeling the sensation in both parts. And you can actually test the sensitivity on yourself, even if you're circumcised, and the difference between your foreskin and the rest of your penis. So if you're circumcised, there's a scar line, and you can run your finger over and feel the sensitivity on the remaining foreskin above that scar line and feel the rest of the penis below, and that's the sensation difference. And if you had the rest of that uh, inner foreskin, then you'd have all the nerve endings that come with that constantly rolling over the head of the penis. And you'd also have what's known as the ridge band. So the very ridge of the penis, the, the outer lining of the foreskin has a bunch of nerve endings. And it's actually the most nerve endings on any part of a man's body. And it's more, nerve endings it's it's a very unique part of the body and it's also removed in every circumcision and there are men who are intact who can orgasm just from that part of the body so one of the interesting things i found researching this film was you know we i think most men are aware that women have different types of orgasms you know and the nerve endings on the g-spot might feel different than the nerve endings on the clitoris and what most people don't know is that men have similar different sensations. So the nerve endings and feelings from uh, the very ridge band of the penis might feel different than those on in the inner lining of the foreskin or the head of the penis or the frenulum. And so if you remove those parts, you might still be able to orgasm and feel great sex, but there is a unique type of sensation you might be missing. And the frenulum 
is the, you know, if you think of the mushroom head of the penis, there's that underside that kind of comes up to a point. And that's what holds the foreskin in place. Similar, you have a frenulum on your tongue that keeps your lip from falling down, right? It's similar that you want that part of the body to stay in place. So there's a frenulum there. And that also has a lot of nerve endings. And many men, even men who are circumcised, report that that's the most sensitive part if they have some frenulum left. And the interesting thing about this is that there's not like a dotted line on men that says cut here, right? So some men have their frenulum and some don't, even if they've both been circumcised. Some have more inner foreskin remaining and others don't. Uh, and so there's a difference in sensation there. So depending on what happened to you, you might still have some of that frenulum and sensation. And then the third sort of change that happens is what's known as keratinization. So you know, your, the palm of your hand has a lot of nerve endings. But if you work with your hands a lot or you work out, you'll get uh, calluses there and, and they might have what's known as keratin in them. You have it on your elbows. It's basically, if you move something across a rough surface, your body's gonna build up toughness and defense there, right? So the head of the penis is meant to be an internal organ. It is meant to be covered all the time. And when it's not, and it's constantly rubbing on the inside of your pants or whatever you're wearing, that part of the body will start to build up uh, carotene and the sort of toughness. And not to get too graphic, but if you if you see an intact man's body, it's mucosal and a bit more like the inside of your lip. And on someone who's circumcised, it will get the sort of rough, abraded, scaly look to it. And you, again, this is a test if you're circumcised and you want to know the difference in sensation you could do on yourself. If you just cover that part of the body, for a week or three weeks, you know, if you were to just wear a condom continuously for three weeks, then when you took that off, that part of the body might be mucosal again and the carotene would go away. Because that carotene is there to protect that because it's constantly rubbing against things. And so if it's not constantly rubbing against things, it will become mucosal again. And men who do foreskin restoration where they stretch and they have a covering there, that's also one of the things that happens is it becomes mucosal again and so that rough callus sensation goes away. And the same way if you stopped working with your hands and let callus sensitive, if your is not constantly rubbing against the inside of your pants, it becomes more sensitive. And again, if you're circumcised, you can test this and find out for yourself. Uh, and so a lot of that sensation that those that keratinization might have been covering would come back and it's also worth noting too that because that part of the body is supposed to be you know is fused to the head of the glands uh when you're born basically everything above the scar line is scar tissue and scar tissue functions a little differently it's a bit more sensitive to pain uh than pleasure so again like if you had a big scar on your hand probably feel different sensations from that than you would from a part of your hand that didn't have that. So even that scarring itself probably changes sensation in some way. Uh, and it's hard to, to talk about all of this without getting into the subjective. And it's going to be very different for each person. So if you have a lot of frenulum or inner foreskin remaining, like maybe you do have a lot of remaining sensation, there are some men I've talked to who are involved in this issue who have almost none of that left, and it's a really big issue for them in their sexuality. They just don't feel a lot. And there are others who have some left or only a little, and it's going to depend person to person. And it's when you get into sexuality too, 
self-reported data is really difficult to evaluate because if you ask someone about their sex life, you can expect them to give an answer that sounds good to them and may not be the full truth. And so the data and testing I've seen that uh, seems the most reliable is stuff that uses objective measures like Meisner's corpuscles and nerve endings. Or um, there's one study called the Sorrel study that actually used microfilament testing. So it's things that are calibrating pressure and using some sort of absolute measure than rather than just interviewing a bunch of people and asking you like, well, how's your sex life? And they're like, good. And you go, great, we have data now, that's science, you know, uh, as opposed to like actually testing. So the, there's a significant difference. Um, and some of the most interesting information I've heard comes from people who were circumcised later in life and then eventually did restoration. We've sort of had it all three different ways, right? So they were circumcised as an adult after having sex. They tried having sex as a circumcised man. They didn't like it and they wanted to go back. So they started stretching that part of the body. And what I have heard from those men is that, uh, as one of them put it, intact, he felt like it was sex was a 10. Circumcised, it was a three. And when he restored, it was a seven. So that, that's sort of like, I know it's a very, again, very subjective, you know, it's, it's, you're going on people's individual experience, but it kind of makes sense based on the nerve endings because uh, you're removing the majority of the nerve endings in, in shaft skin with circumcision. And then when you cover that part, again, the keratinization goes away in the head of the penis and you also get the gliding motion. So the gliding motion, is also worth talking about because that part of the body gliding over the head of the penis creates a different rhythm of sexuality. So if you have two surfaces gliding over each other, you don't need the same length of stroke to get the same sensation. Whereas if the only sensation you're getting is from friction, you have to do much longer strokes and more of a uh, like longer strokes and, and what you might describe as pounding. So it actually also changes the way that the man might have sex and changes the experience for his partner because if he's doing longer strokes, that's changing, you know, taking his body away from the woman more as opposed to shorter strokes where he's closer to her. So you're getting into also a change in maybe the way that that person will move. I, I, I also know that the largest market in the world for erectile dysfunction medication is the United States, and the second largest is Israel, which is the two largest circumcising countries, right? Uh, and I think that part of the, one of the things I've heard is that if you're building up keratine over time, you're losing sensation over time. So you keep getting keratinization for, you know, 50 years straight, then eventually there's going to be some sensation change that comes from that. And I, there's one uh, person I interviewed who makes foreskin restoration devices, so things that are intended to slowly stretch that skin over time. And he actually, he had a letter from someone who said that they he couldn't finish and he couldn't conceive a child and was able to after doing that. So there's, there's definitely people who've noticed a difference between the two. So that's probably more in depth than you ever wanted to know about these changes. But uh, it is a significant difference. So, and, yeah. Uh, let's run through a hypothetical scenario here. Uh, I'm a new parent. We're about to have a baby. We're at the hospital. 
Do I have to tell the doctor before delivery, after delivery? Do I have a say-so? How does all that work? So hospitals are required to get you to sign a consent form, but they use some high-pressure sales tactics to do it. So legally, they can't do anything. A consent form to have the operation done or to not have it done? Yes, to have it done. Okay. So there have been cases where the hospital accidentally circumcises a child. On an unrelated note, I I really support uh, home birth and natural birth much more over hospital birth because a lot of the interventions they do are about medical insurance and liability more so than the health of the child. But if you are there, uh, they are legally required to have you sign something that says that they can do that. It used to be they would have a blanket consent form that basically said the hospital gets to do whatever they want. And uh, they had to change that uh, because people complained about it. And now they have to get one for circumcision. Now, they will still sometimes try to give that form to a woman while she is still on drugs from the birth. So I know there was one lawsuit over that that was successful because the lawyer basically said, like, you can't have someone sign a legal document while they're on drugs. Like, that's not how consent works. Uh, but I've heard from a lot of people that the doctors will ask like six or seven times. They'll try to use some high pressure sales tactics on you because they get paid for it. So it's important to know if you are doing hospital birth that the interests of the doctors in the hospital are not necessarily aligned to the best interests of your child. They're aligned to the profit of the hospital. Uh, whereas if you work with a doula or a home birth, and a lot of those people too, they are connected enough to the hospital system. So if you really do, you know, something goes wrong and you really do need to go to a hospital, you can do that. But as uh, a lot of people have said, you know, Beth, birth is not a medical emergency. Like it's not something going wrong. This is natural. Women have figured out how to do this for millions of years. You don't necessarily need to go into that system. Uh, but if you are there, you do have to be vigilant about it. And you do have to make sure that they don't try to get, you know, sometimes they'll try to get one parent to sign it when the other parent doesn't want it done and has made it really clear. Um, and the other thing you have to be careful of is what's known as forced retraction. So like I said, that part of the body is fused, you know, the foreskin is fused to the head of the glands, kind of like how your fingernail is fused to your finger. And what has been, what has been really common and what there's been a lot of complaints about is doctors retracting that part of the body, literally ripping it off during even well baby visits. So because doctors think there is something unnatural or unhealthy about the foreskin, and they've been told you have to clean under there, right? Well, if you have foreskin, you have to clean under it. They will pull that back and cause harm to an otherwise healthy baby under the guise of like, oh, we just need to fix the foreskin. And by the way, when they do that, then and they, they harm that part of the body and they cause an infection, which they've caused doing it, and they'll say, well, there's an infection, see? The foreskin's just unhealthy. You got to cut that off. You know, we caused an infection. Now we have to do a circumcision. Uh, so you also have to look out for that. And it's a sort of an absurd thing because, like, you don't clean under your fingernail, right? And you know, the saying is, you only clean what is seen. And you wouldn't like rip open the inside of a little baby girl to clean in there. We'd all understand that would be an awful thing to do. And if a doctor did that, that he should go to jail. But 
uh, in a survey done by a group called Intact America, they found that 60% of parents with intact children had had a doctor try to forcibly retract their child. So it's more common than not for a doctor to do that. Mm. That's, that's, that's basically rape. Yeah. It, it is. I mean, you're, you're touching a child's genitals without their consent and without a medical reason to do so. And they'll say, oh, well, we think you have to clean under there, but that is, I mean, even circum pro-circumcision groups acknowledge that you don't need to do that. So, right. yeah. So, so forced retraction, and then if you're in the hospital system, be aware that they're going to try to sell you on it. I get the monetary incentive for the doctors. Uh, is there anything you can provide us with as far as information is concerned is what doctors are being told as to why this operation is to be done? Because I know uh, I speak to college students, doctors, nurses, and honestly, most of them are idiots. They don't, you know, they're just, they kind of just do what they're told. They kind of just go along with what they were told in school and never do any own independent research or alternative research. So most doctors are taught nothing about the foreskin except how to remove it. And I have heard from a lot of people who've been in the medical community that you basically get a 20 minute lecture, you know, however many years ago when they're in medical school. And then they will lord that over people and say, well, I have a medical degree. Like, how could you possibly know more than me? When they got a 20 minute lecture a whole bunch of years ago, right? And furthermore, you know, circumcision involves anthropology and sexuality and all these unrelated disciplines, which also aren't taught in medical school. And one of the things I've heard is that there's medical textbooks that basically all they say about the foreskin is it's the part removed during circumcision. Like it's literally defined by the operation to remove it. You know, we don't understand anything else that might be involved there. And during residency, it is the residents uh, who have to do circumcisions. So one of the things that people don't know if they get a circumcision in the hospital system is that it's often not the doctor doing it. It's a medical student doing it. And the, the method they use is see one, do one, teach one. So the doctor will come in, he'll bring the medical student in, he'll say, this is how you do a circumcision. We'll show him how to do it. Then the medical student will do one. And then he's on his own and he gets to just do them as many as he wants. He doesn't have any follow-up with, you know, it's not like he'll see the results of them. It's not like he'll talk to that child uh, years later and ask how that surgery worked out for him. Um, it's one of the reasons why botches in the hospital system are so common. So if you've ever known or seen someone who had like a weird curvature of the penis, that's usually because more skin was taken off on one side than the other. So if there's more skin on one side or the other, it'll curve in the opposite direction. So there's a lot of botches that come from the hospital system. And, and when parents think about circumcision, they often think like, well, like, should I or should I not? They don't think about like, who's doing it? Like, with what device? Like, are you just going to have some med student hold down our child and cut off part of his body? And like, that's what his sexuality is for the rest of his life? And that's usually what it is. And, and that's, I think, part of the reason that doctors are so defensive about them is if you're a medical student and you've put four years into college and you put, you know, however many years in the medical school and, like, it's your first day on the job and someone tells you to do something, like, you're not going to say, like, oh, I'm going to risk all of that money to, like, ethically question this thing, which everyone in society says is normal and okay. 
you're going to do it. And then if someone says later, like, hey, do you think you might have raped a child? Like, how much defensiveness is that going to bring out, right? So there's a huge psychological component that goes into not questioning it. And, and one of the doctors I interviewed, a, a Jewish doctor who stopped doing circumcisions, one of the things he said is, like, he didn't hear the screams of the children because, you know, he was he had a job. He was there to do a job. He could just tune it out. He was told that's what he's supposed to do. And when he actually finally heard them, that's when he stopped. So if you're, you know, I know this from filmmaking that if you're looking through the lens of a camera, what's in front of you, it doesn't always feel real. And so if you have something you can focus on, like the technique of a particular job, it's easy to tune out the emotional content of what's happening. And medical school, and I've heard this from people who've gone through it, kind of functions like a hazing. Like you have this thing that you have to do and there's people in authority and you don't question them and you have to go through this and then you're a member of the group or the the, the tribe, so to speak. Uh, so I find that there isn't a lot taught about this in medical school and there's a lot of psychological issues that even questioning it brings up. Because if you tell a doctor, you know, I, don't, I don't think people get into that profession with the intention of harming anyone. But the idea that they might have harmed someone might be really scary to their self-image or their own feelings. So if you bring that up, you know, you can expect there to be some things that they're not, they're a little afraid to look at. And of course, doctors are not known as a group for their rebellious nature or their deep emotional presence. Uh, so you're, you're also trying to feel into some skills that might not be well developed. Genesis, what what was that? Uh, the the biblical command. Yeah. So that was Genesis seventeen eleven. Genesis. There's more than one place it was brought up, uh, but that's that's the main Abrahamic one. Yeah, gotta be careful with these translations because the one you gave me, it's a little bit harder to find, but that's not uncommon. <laughs> yeah. I might I might be getting my chapter and verse wrong. I, that's what I remember it as. I could I could check it if you need me to. Well, but yeah, I, it, 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 it says you are to un undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Next that's verse. What, that's seventeen eleven. I do know that one of the biblical commands is it's specifically for. Uh, Jewish children and slaves. And, and the interesting thing about the, the statement is that uh, the circumcision is the new idea and the slavery is the one that everyone in that culture would have accepted and known about. In other words, the, the basic implication of it was like, look, we all we all know about this slavery thing, but let me tell you about this new idea. You hold children down, cut parts of their body off. Um, so there's a, in a very interesting cultural assumption that you have to almost overlook within the verse. I think I found it. Um, did, I get, did I get the exact verse wrong? Is it like 12 or? Uh, no, I'm trying to find it now. I'll pull it up. Um, I just want to make sure it's, uh, well, it says according to Genesis. And the yeah. All right. So it's 17. Genesis 17, 10 to ah, 14. So 12, for generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old 
including those born in your household and those bought with money from a foreigner. So that's Genesis 17, 12. It was the next verse. 17, 12. Uh, yeah, and the phrase bought with money from a foreigner uh, is sometimes translated as slave. Because generally when you buy a person with money, that's what it's called. Including those born in your ha household or bought with money from a foreigner. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, on that note, thank you very much, man. This interview was very insightful. I'm going to have to go barf now. <laughs> Understandable. I full, I'm fully aware that... Uh, this subject includes some very uncomfortable things. Yeah. Robert Grafton, $5 super chat. He says, saving this video. Yeah, please do. Serious, serious subject here. Um, make sure y'all check out his film on Netflix, uh, American uh, Circumcision, right? Yep. And you can find it on circumcisionmovie.com. Circumcisionmovie.com. Brendan, thank you, man. Um, if you got anything else you ever want to talk about, you always got my platform. Use me as a resource. I'm always here for you, bro. Appreciate it. Thank you. Peace out, y'all. See y'all next time. Tomorrow we got a special guest when we talk about Islam. So tune in for that cast tomorrow at 11 a.m. That's going to be wild. And we probably might bring some of this stuff up, too, because I know uh, Islam uh, deals heavily in the subject as well. Mm -hmm. Awesome, man. Talk to you soon, bro. Thank you.